You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This sixth lecture is concerned with moral reasoning. When we uh, consider how it is that we set out to do something, uh, it looks as if, uh, if actions are for the sake of an end. Given the end that we desire, we would be looking for the means to achieve that end. And indeed, that is the procedure that we find uh, both uh, Thomas and Aristotle uh, taking. Uh, the notion of the good as being our end or of the will as simply being aimed at the end uh, may seem to pose a certain problem for us. That it sometimes might seem to us that we just distinguish between human agents in this way, that some are seeking the good and some are not, that is, are seeking uh, evil. But uh, on reflection, we can see it really can't be described in quite that way. Uh, if the will is an appetite for the good, the only thing we can uh, pursue is the good. And this, of course, uh, might seem to present a bit of a paradox. No matter what we pursue, we are pursuing as a good. Uh, and if to pursue the good is to make one good, it might look uh, as if everyone is just by dint of acting at all a good person. And if that were the case, then there wouldn't be any need for ethics. There wouldn't be any need to distinguish between some choices and others, some ends and others. Uh, how is it that Thomas uh, uh, handled this? Let me emphasize, this is his view, that uh, the good is what all seek. Uh, it isn't that some people seek the good and others do not. Uh, that is what we are, is a good-seeking animal, so to speak. To have a will is precisely to be ordered uh, to the good, and that's not an option. We don't uh, wake up in the morning and decide today we'll choose or uh, aim ourselves at the good. Uh, uh, that's just not in the cards for us. So what is the discernment, uh, then, that is necessary in morals. What is the need for morals? I mentioned in an earlier lecture uh, Augustine's expression of this fact. We are simply made for God who is goodness. He's the one that we long for and we're just restless until we achieve that. Uh, Chesterton had a more earthy way of expressing the same truth. Uh, uh, he says someplace uh, that the young man knocking at the brothel door is looking for God. And we would say, well, he's got the wrong address. But the point is that uh, whatever anyone is doing, they're doing uh, for the sake of the good. The great difference is that we can be mistaken, as I indicated in the case of Chesterton's uh, young man. We have misconstrued uh, a certain pursuit as one that will lead to the good, will bring us to our end, and as a matter of fact, we are mistaken. Uh, so that the problem of moral reasoning is to get straight as to what the true good is what truly will lead us to our end. So the distinction that's required uh, here is the obvious one between the real and the apparent good. But everyone, no matter who, in acting is pursuing at least the apparent good, what appears to him at that moment to be good, and there's nothing else that one might uh, do. Uh, later, when we talk about conscience, we'll see the way in which we appraise uh, the choices or the decisions that we've made uh, in retrospect uh, and uh, decide uh, exactly in terms of this distinction. Was that really the right thing to do? Was that really the good as you thought it to be at the time of acting? So the problem of moral reasoning 
is uh, one of finding out, first of all, what is the true end, that is, what really fills the bill as ultimate end, and then deciding on the appropriate means to achieve that end. Uh, there is another font of morality, as I mentioned later, and to which we will be returning in our final lecture, and that is the circumstances in which we act. But we're not at this point so much concerned with the uh, moral appraisal of the act as getting clear what it is that we're going to morally appraise. And uh, the first suggestion is that what we are going to appraise is the reasoning going on when we are directing ourselves to this concrete end and we are selecting these means uh, to achieve that end. Uh, so that we have this portrait of what human action is, what we're doing when we uh, set out to act, and it is what looking for the appropriate means in these circumstances to achieve the end in view. Now, while that is the primary, uh, certainly chronologically primary, uh, way of talking about human action, both in the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle and in the moral part of the Summa of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, there comes uh, later on another sort of analysis uh, which leads to one of the more uh, interesting uh, doctrines, certainly one of the most discussed doctrines of the uh, moral part of the Summa, uh, natural law. And that alternative uh, view uh, of uh, action is that what action consists of is the application of certain principles or rules to particular circumstances. So we have what might appear to us uh, to be rival candidates for the nature of a moral action or a moral decision. On the one hand, here is the end. I am seeking the means to achieve that end. On the other hand, here are the rules of action, and the problem is to apply them accurately to these circumstances. Now, what I want to do is uh, to look at what uh, Thomas particularly has to say about each of these um, portraits of uh, decision-making uh, on the part of a human being. The first, that is, the way in which he breaks down uh, the various will acts that are involved in uh, the pursuit of an end by certain uh, means. So what's involved in the action, we uh, needn't repeat, uh, is um, a dual aspect. On the one hand, uh, cognition, being aware of what we're doing, and on the other hand, freely uh, engaging uh, in the pursuit of that thing. So knowledge and will are complementary components of the human action. And as we were seeing in our last lecture, if there is some defect on either side, we're going to say that, well, that looked to be a human action, but it's not going to count as a human action because one possibility, the person did not know what she was doing, as Jocasta did not know that Oedipus was her son. So that while in some kind of biological and uh, de facto way, we could say, look, here's an instance of a woman marrying her son from the moral point of view, from the point of view of the moral action, from the point of view of what she can be held responsible for and praised and blamed for, uh, she is uh, not doing that. If she's not doing it, if that isn't what she said, it's not 
about to do, in any serious moral sense, be said to uh, be doing that. So on the side of knowledge, as we saw, there can be a flaw. And on the side of the will, insofar as violence or pressure or suasion uh, enters into the picture, that can diminish and perhaps uh, completely remove uh, the uh, voluntary character of the action, so it no longer uh, would qualify as a human action, even though it's something that would enter into, let's say, the biographical account of that person's life. This is something uh, worth uh, reflecting on. It's always seemed to me, and uh, in several of my books on the subject, I have dwelt on that. Uh, the way in which our life and our moral life are not absolutely identical. Uh, and by that I mean this, if you should uh, be so unfortunate as to become uh, the subject of a biography, huh, your biographer is going to uh, try to give as complete account, doubtless, of your life. So take life in the sense of a biography, the writing of a life. Things like where you were born, who your parents were, will enter into uh, that particular account. If you win the Indiana lottery, for example, that's going to get a chapter all to itself and so forth. Uh, and the fact that uh, as a result of an accident, you ended up in a hospital where you met Fifi, your wife, and so forth, that'll be in there too. But you can see I'm mentioning things which, uh, while they're true of you, would not be among the things that we would say you deliberately or freely did. Uh, and if our moral life is made up only of human actions in the sense that we're talking about it, it looks as if our life in the sense of a biography is a much more uh, commodious account uh, of the things that happened to us as well as the things that we made happen. If we tried to think of our life simply in terms of that which we deliberately and freely do, if we thought that it was our task to make everything in our day uh, subservient to our knowledge and our will, we would very quickly uh, be extremely frustrated because one of the things that comes is inescapable in a human life is that we are at all times uh, subject to uh, happenings over which we have no control and which we do not bring about. Very often, however, they're attached to what we do do. So that, say, if I am caught in the rain, uh, this was uh, 40-some years ago, I'm caught in the rain, and I step into a boutique, uh, and there's this luscious woman behind the counter, and I start talking to us, and now we have all these grandchildren. Uh, this is something I might not have done. Uh, and I can say it's because I knew enough to come out of the rain that I married Constance, etc. But we would see this as something that I deliberately did, getting out of the rain, but I didn't, at that point, deliberately meet the woman that I would marry. So our lives are this strange sort of mixture of what we set out to do and things that happen as a result of our setting out to do uh, a particular thing. And I think for most of us, this is where there is an intimation of divinity, where we uh, begin to perceive uh, the role of God in our lives, because we simply are not in total control. And the notion of the moral life, as we're developing it here, namely deliberate, voluntary acts and so forth, these are what we will be held accountable uh, for, no doubt. But uh, our life includes far more than that, and the voluntary acts that we perform will be 
often performed in circumstances that just happened to come about as a result of some voluntary act that we performed earlier. That is, coming in out of the rain, meeting this lovely girl, and going on to the folly of taking her out and proposing, and uh, her folly and accepting, and the like. So uh, a very curious interweaving. It isn't as if we could put all the accidental things over here and all the deliberate things over here and just concentrate on these. They interconnect and interweave in very curious ways so that we get a pattern uh, of our life of the kind uh, that uh, Thornton Wilder, for example, at the end of that magnificent novel, The Eighth Day, uh, gives us a little sketch of, uh, or now more recently, the novel Felicia's Journey by Desmond. I'll think of his name, an Irish writer, wonderful uh, writer whose name is escaping me. But let's go back to Thornton Wilder, that notion of a very complicated interweaving of the intended and the unintended in our life. One of the reasons that uh, Thomas Aquinas spends so much time gaining clarity or seeking clarity about the structure of the human act is because, of course, that's what we want morally to appraise. And just as we saw that it's not enough simply to say, well, what human beings as human beings do is engage in rational activity, therefore to do that well will make one a good human being, we see how complicated uh, that became. So too, when we talk about the human action as the seeking of means to an end, we'll find, if we follow Thomas here, that that too begins to diversify itself and to become extremely uh, complicated. And what I'm going to try to do uh, right now is to give you viva voce and on the fly, so to speak, a uh, portrait of Thomas's analysis of the various will acts which are involved in the human act insofar as it is aimed at the end and the various will acts which are involved insofar as we're talking about the selection of the mean. Now, he distinguishes here acts of the will, but of course there's always a complementary act of reason uh, involved as well because will responds uh, to cognition, to reason. Uh, the will is, so to speak, a blind appetite. It's a drive towards the good, but as to what the good is, uh, for this it must be guided by reason. Only the known good uh, can attract us is one of the uh, general rules. So what I'm going to put before you now will have the flavor of the Baroque because it's going to be a very complicated, uh, but I hope intelligible, portrait of the constituent will acts when we're talking about the human act as, again, directed towards the end and then as directed uh, towards the mean. And what Thomas says is this. First of all, uh, there is an act of the will uh, towards the end simply as desirable. That is, a reason uh, picks out something and sees uh, desirable uh, aspects of it, and the will is engaged in a preliminary way. And for this, Thomas uses the term for will, for the capacity of will. He uses it to name this act of that capacity and calls this voluntas, or the will, or the wish is the way in which we find it in the translation of Aristotle, where we have a comparable but far less nuanced uh, discussion of the same matter. So first of all, a repetitive response to something which is intellectually seen as good, as desirable. Uh, beyond that, uh, Thomas distinguishes a engagement of the will uh, insofar as we begin to take pleasure uh, in uh, thinking about that desirable object. 
Uh, and here he uses the infinitive of the deponent verb fruor, frui, uh, to talk about this, to take delight in, to take pleasure in, uh, thinking about something which is uh, good. And a final will act that he uh, mentions with respect to uh, the end is intensio, our intention. That is, beginning to see that object, that desirable object in which we have taken pleasure now as something to be achieved. So we're on the verge then of looking for what the means uh, to realize that particular end. So Thomas then switches over uh, and uh, begins to talk about uh, the voluntary acts that are associated with the means uh, to the end which has engaged us in the way uh, just described. Uh, and insofar as by taking deliberation, that cognitive search, we come up with ways in which we might achieve that end. If they're plural, we could say, well, we give our consent to this means, that means. We haven't chosen among them yet. We're acknowledging, well, that would be a way uh, to get there. This would be another way to get there. So there's a kind of assent to or consent to those means, which is a prelude to choosing one of them. So we have here consensus, the Latin term Thomas gives, and then elexio, or the choice of one means as opposed to the other. And finally, uh, he speaks of a third will act bearing upon the means, which he calls uti, uti another deponent verb, utor, the infinitive then is uti, to use, the use, that is, of the bodily limbs or the feet to get to uh, that objective. Let's say it was going downtown Birmingham, uh, and we've decided on a way to get there uh, among various ways that were attractive. We get on our bicycle and uh, we start pedaling, using our limbs and so forth to exit that means in order to get to that end. Well, uh, you might say that's a pretty complicated way uh, to talk about a human act since one instance of a human act would be my pouring myself a cup of coffee. And you might say, come on, I don't need all that to discuss that action. So why is it? Why is it that Thomas goes into this very complicated breakdown uh, analysis of the human action? Because this is a prelude to the moral appraisal of what we do. And as Alan Dunnigan pointed out in a fascinating article on uh, Aquinas on action, which appears in the Cambridge History of Medieval Philosophy, the principle of distinguishing these various uh, will acts in the complete human act, uh, going downtown Birmingham would be the way we would describe the upshot of all this, uh, the reason for distinguishing uh, the complete human act into these components is not that we psychologically move through each of them every time that we act, but that an act can be arrested at one of those points. And there can be a question of the moral appraisal of that. If you think back to the second will act bearing on the end, when we begin to take pleasure in, uh, a particular prospect that attracts us, that might be, on a moral appraisal, that might be something that we would not admire ourselves for. The thing that is attracting us and that we're taking pleasure in, uh, let's say, saying something really awful to somebody else, is not the sort of thing that establishes a good character in us. And to start taking pleasure in those things can lead on uh, to overt action. So we tend to say that has some kind of moral quality already. 
Uh, and of course, Christ spoke of sinning in the heart. We get into the moral appraisal of action. We're not always talking about this complete human act, but one that went so far and no farther. When you see that principle, that criterion for distinguishing these constituents of the complete human act, uh, cited by uh, Alan Dunnigan, and then you look at the analysis in the Summa, you'll find indeed on several occasions Thomas states that as the principle for distinguishing between this will act and this constituent will act and that constituent will act of the complete human act. But he's not again saying that in each and every act we go through each of these steps in a kind of overt way but rather we can recognize that they're implicit in any act, even pouring yourself a cup of coffee, but they only become significant in terms of uh, our ability to say, well, we only went that far, we didn't go uh, this far, and in morally appraising our behavior can be of uh, significance. It's a little uh, risky to try to uh, give just verbally something that you just kind of long to make an outline of or do a sketch of and so forth. I have several times in written works on this portion of Thomas's moral doctrine, that is the uh, structure of the human act. In this uh, particular book, Aquinas on Human Action, A Theory of Practice, you find a quite extensive analysis of what I've just put before you uh, in what I hope was a clear way, but uh, it would be uh, somewhat difficult to follow, I think, just orally. And uh, if you wanted to consult uh, Thomas, of course, first of all, uh, but then uh, those of us who come along in his wake and try to analyze and uh, represent what he has said, uh, it, it will doubtless become uh, even clearer. Again, we have to see why is he doing that? Uh, he's not doing it simply to engage in what nowadays we call action theory and see how many different ways we can describe an action or distinguish an action. For example, in action theory, people will ask, uh, well, what is a basic human action? And one of the favorite candidates is raising my hand. Well, what does that amount to? It might be that I want to leave the room if I'm a child in class. It might be that I'm uh, giving the signal for the firing squad to shoot. Uh, it might be that I'm making a bid at an it might be lots of things. It might be someone has tied a string to my finger and they're holding it up in that way and I'm really not uh, lifting my hand. And action theory very often becomes absolutely luxuriant in its portrait of the variety and the different ways in which we can describe an, an action. And a point is, I think, quite soon reached where we say, why? Why are we doing that? And what I'm saying is if we ask Thomas, why are you getting into what I characterize as a somewhat Baroque subdivision of the complete human action into all of these constituent acts, the reason is that all of this is aimed at a moral appraisal. And it can be significant insofar as we hold ourselves accountable, whether we think that the act went this far, that far, and so forth. And we can distinguish acts that don't go the whole distance where an action is arrested at uh, this point or that point or the other point. You can see, too, with respect to the question of uh, the involuntary due to violence that we spoke about last time, insofar as we get to the very ultimate will act use, that is actually executing or putting the inner decision into execution, we might be prevented from doing that by someone else. Huh?
Uh, so the action would have been almost complete, but just up to that point, and we didn't do it because we were stopped. Well, you could imagine very easily moral scenarios where someone had deliberated how to do something awful and had gone through all the steps and had very carefully decided on this one, had chosen it, and in the attempt to execute it, he was prevented from doing so, maybe by someone who didn't wittingly know that they were preventing this person from doing this dreadful act. And we say, well, a person is innocent. He didn't actually, he didn't actually rob the bank or whatever. Uh, but in his heart, uh, he had done everything but carry it out into execution. And that morally would be significantly different from simply by way of a velleity uh, sitting around thinking, wouldn't it be kind of interesting to rob a bank and have it go no farther than that. When we return, I want to look at a quite different way of analyzing human action uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that is where we think of the decision not in terms of an end and the means to achieving that end, but uh, rather in terms of principles and their application. We're going to talk now about what is perhaps the uh, most known of Thomas's moral doctrine, uh, even by those who know uh, little else about it. Uh, unlike uh, the analysis of human action that uh, we uh, have just given in terms of end and means and the various constituent uh, will acts that go into the complete uh, human act, uh, what we turn to now is, as I say, very familiar. It's discussed, it's read independently of anything else Thomas had to say about moral action. I refer, of course, to the doctrine of natural law, the uh, relevant uh, treatise on law in the first part of the second part of the Summa, which begins at question 90, uh, has been reprinted separately, uh, is used as a book in uh, courses on uh, legal theory as well as morals as just a freestanding treatise. Uh, it's anything but that if we take it seriously as a treatise within uh, a long discussion of uh, human action. And the things that we've been looking at uh, up to this point occur uh, early on in the uh, Prima Secundae. The questions, say, 1 through 16 uh, would be sufficient to uh, know, to see, to understand, to have the basis for what I've been talking about up to this point in this lecture. Uh, the Treatise on Law shows up, as I say, in question 90. A lot of things go on in between, say, question 20 and question 90, uh, so that to just take that as if it's a freestanding treatise and is a sufficient portrait of what uh, Thomas meant by human action uh, runs into difficulties, at least from a, a bibliographical point of view. It's a little part of a work, of a very large work, uh, and presumably the role and the setting within that work uh, will tell us a lot about the significance of the treatise on law. All that by way of caveat, so now let's talk about natural law. What Thomas does when he first introduces the uh, concept of natural law is to say this, natural law is the peculiarly human participation in eternal law. And the context, of course, is this, the whole of creation is governed by providence. So eternal law here in providence can be taken to be fairly synonymous. Everything, every creature is what it is because God has made it that way and given the nature that it has, it has its own end or purpose. 
So as we were saying when we were talking about moral teleology, for Thomas, the teleology of our actions fits within a whole framework, a created framework, in which everything is acting for an end. So there, remember, our task was to show what is the difference between the way in which we say that human beings act for an end and anything else, a petunia or a ladybug, uh, acts for the sake of an end. And there, you remember, the answer was that human beings are not only ordered to an end, but they deliberately and freely order themselves uh, to uh, their end. And this is distinctive of us, sets us off uh, from other creatures and so on. Uh, so too here, when uh, Thomas talks about natural law as the peculiar human participation in eternal law, he's making exactly the same point. We're not just propelled towards an end by our nature and by the author of our nature. Our nature is such that we are fashioned to order ourselves to our end. First of all, to get clear as to what it is. We don't, of course, just invent it. We have to know what it is given what we are, and then we direct ourselves for it. So that's the first portrait or the first description we might say, of natural law as it occurs in the treatise on law, the peculiarly human participation in eternal law. Everything participates in eternal law, every creature, but man, human beings, persons do it differently. They are aware of their place in this whole order and aware of what they are and aware that they can freely direct themselves or not to that which is really fulfilling uh, of them. There is another definition of uh, natural law, and we might say this is more the philosophical one. Let me give it first. The philosophical one would be this. The first and most common principles of human action, that's what we mean by natural law. Now, it's important that we have both of these because one of the marks of natural law is that here we are at those starting points of the practical order that no one could fail to know. Remember I described philosophy as St. Thomas engages in it, uh, he learned this from Aristotle, as taking off from what everybody already knows and trying to push beyond that but never denying what everybody knows, but pushing beyond it. So in the practical order, in the moral order, the great assumption is this, we already know things about the moral order. And what we already know, what we could not possibly not know, that's what the term natural law is used to designate. The very first inescapable, non-gainsayable, they can't be contradicted, principles of action. Okay. Now, as I say, it's important that we have both of those definitions because we might find this objection. Someone might say, well, does that, if I say that natural law is the peculiarly human participation in eternal law, it looks as if that presupposes that I believe in God or know that there's a God. If I don't know that or don't believe it, then this just isn't going to address me. It's not going to make any uh, particular uh, sense to me. And there's something to uh, that objection. Thomas is writing a book of theology when he writes the Summa of Theology, oddly enough. Uh, and so we would expect him always to be looking at things from what? The perspective of revelation, the perspective of God. Everything in theology swings around uh, the concentration on God, so much so that we can say God is the subject 
of the science of theology, a very startling suggestion. But we see it here, that when Thomas turns to the very first principles of human action, his first impulse as a theologian is to give it what is quite clearly a theological definition. It is the peculiarly human participation in uh, divine law. The other uh, definition doesn't make any such mention, so we might think that it forestalls uh, that kind of objection. But it does enable us to make another kind of clarification. Someone might say, let's say this is an atheist, he says, it's not simply that I don't believe in God, uh, and therefore I don't understand, I don't know how to agree with this claim that uh, natural law is the peculiarly human's participation in divine law, but I don't know anyone who knows this other definition either. Does everyone know that? Uh, that there are first undeniable starting points for human action? Let me introduce you to my uncle Charles. He never heard of this stuff. He never said it and so forth. And there's a sense in which that's a good objection. But what is the objection? Uh, it comes down to this. What everybody knows is what the theory of natural law is about. They don't know the theory of natural law. Not everyone has engaged in the kind of discussion that you and I are engaged in now, and it would be preposterous to suggest that everyone has. Huh? But what we are saying is that what we are discussing is what everyone knows. Huh? And that's, you'll appreciate, a decidedly different claim. It's still a very adventuresome claim and one that will require a good deal of discussion. But it's very different to say that there are certain principles that everyone knows and quite another thing to say that everybody has some theory about there being first principles that everyone knows. Now, in a famous passage in the Summa, question 94, article two, Thomas gives us this kind of initial account of the first principles of practical reasoning, the first principles of moral action. And he does it by an analogy. And it's worth, I think, spending a moment on this because it ties up again with the conception of philosophy that Thomas had. Thomas uses this analogy. It is in the practical use of our mind as it is in the theoretical use of our mind. Well, how is it in the theoretical use of our mind? Uh, Thomas says that uh, we can distinguish there a certain concept uh, that no one could fail to have and a certain first judgment that no one could fail to make. And we said, well, what are those? And uh, Thomas would say, well, you know, the very first thing that the intellect grasps is being. And the very first judgment that the mind makes is this, it's impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time and in the same respect. You think of those, and again, you think of your famous Uncle Charlie, and you say, I never heard him say that. You look in your baby book, and you look under baby's first sentence, and you don't find that sentence. Uh, it's impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time in the same respect. And with regard to baby's first word, it was, let's say, hot or mama or car car. It wasn't being. So we might think, well, this is an interesting kind of account, but it doesn't seem to answer to anything like ordinary experience. Such objections are important. The only way you can assimilate a doctrine is by imagining all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't and how you can overcome, if you can, those difficulties. Of course, Thomas is not suggesting that being is the first word that you pronounce. What he is saying that anything whatsoever that you first grasp, whether it be a car, mama, a bottle of milk, or whatever, you grasp it first of all as something, as a thing, as out there. That's what he means by being, that which has existence. And so to any judgment whatsoever that we make has implicit in it 
this judgment that it's impossible for a thing to be and not to be at the same time in the same respect. Of course, where that judgment is embedded in every particular judgment, so that when little kids are arguing, very often the argument descends to the one saying it is, it is and the other it isn't, tis, tisn't, tis, tisn't, and so forth. This is a dramatic uh, portrayal of the principle of contradiction in operation. They both are agreed on this, that either it is or it isn't, huh? and the one is making the one assertion and the other is making the contradictory assertion. What are they talking about? Whether or not the bicycle is in the garage or whether or not the lawn has been mowed or whatever, but embedded in any human discourse is first of all the grasp of whatever we grasp as something, as a being, and all of our judgments are guided by, even though they aren't as such the formal expression of what Thomas calls the principle of contradiction. And that's the sort of thing that he feels shows up as well in the practical order as we'll see in a moment. What Thomas has had to say about uh, theoretical reasoning or reasoning just as such, he says, is a good model for uh, understanding how we use our mind practically. And here he says the starting point is not just being, but being as desirable, that is the good, the way in which things enter into practical reasoning insofar as we see them as relating to our appetite as uh, perfective of us, as good. The uh, most uh, basic judgment in the practical order is that the good ought to be done and pursued and evil avoided. And any judgment that we make will involve that judgment. If we say do that, we're saying in effect that's the good thing to do and the opposite is to be avoided. That would be evil in these particular circumstances. Now, just as in the theoretical order, we expect these first principles, these starting point, uh, to be embedded in very concrete ones. And only under the pressure of theoretical analysis would we come up with the statement that being is the first thing that the uh, intellect knows and that the principle of contradiction, as it's called, is the primary judgment. We don't mean chronologically prior in the sense that we formulate explicitly and thematically that judgment or that concept, but that whatever concept we have presupposes that one, it's latent in them, and whatever first most basic judgment is latent in it. As I say, we would have to squeeze it out of uh, these concrete instances uh, in order to see that it's embedded in all of them and is first and prior in that sense. And so too it is in the practical order. Although here it is, it struck me that the term good functions in kitchens and nurseries and bedrooms and so forth uh, very early on. Little kids have adults hanging over their cribs uh, saying not just goo-goo but good-good and they're led to identify things as desirable with that label, with that particular term good. So that uh, it may be a little bit different differently here than in the theoretical order, whereas I don't know any parents who look their kids in the eye and say being, being, being. They tend to be designating rather particular beings like mama, dada, uncle, charlie, and so forth. Again, in the practical order, the term good seems to be right out there very much at the outset. Okay, so here we have the analogy, uh, theoretical reasoning and practical reasoning, and Thomas is saying there is this first inescapable practical judgment that is embedded in any practical judgment that we make and it sort of defines the practical order. The good ought to be done and pursued and evil avoided. Well, what is the good? What is the good? So we're back to that kind of discussion again, and it's here that we see the coming together of the end means analysis on the one hand and this 
big principle or universal, very general principle analysis on the other. Because if we ask ourselves, what is expressed in the uh, very first principle of the practical order? Uh, it is, of course, the end that the good ought to be pursued and desired and uh, evil avoided. The good is the end. So what we will expect in these principles, and there will be more than one, is the articulation of the good. Uh, so principles, we might say, are expressive, at least at the outset, of the end. And when we get into rules of action, they're going to be articulations of the means whereby an end can be realized or achieved. So it would be possible, it's not my purpose right now, to show the complementarity, indeed at a certain point, the fusion of these two uh, kinds of analysis. But what I want to do is to show the way in which from the point of view of the articulation of the end, of the good, uh, that there is indeed a, a strong complementarity in this key text uh, that I'm relying on for these remarks. Again, uh, question 94, article two in the first part of the second part of the Summa. What is the good? Now, in this passage, and this is one where you get some very interesting variations of interpretation. In this passage, Thomas goes immediately to the fact that we have certain natural inclinations. There are certain things that we are just directed to as goods. Uh, we're drawn to them. We're attracted to them willy-nilly. It's not an option for us. It's part of our nature to be attracted uh, to such things. And he gives a set of them, of these natural inclinations. And he hierarchizes them in this way. There is one inclination that we have that's most basic because it's shared by anything whatsoever, living or not. And that is the inclination to retain oneself in existence to hang on to the reality that we have, the existence that we have. So we resist destruction. Everything does. Everything does. So he takes this to be a natural inclination towards being that we have, but of course, so does everything else. There are other inclinations which we share with other animals, or we might say even with plants, that is to take nourishment. Huh? So food and drink and the drive of thirst and hunger that uh, just propels us towards food and drink, this is not something we choose. It's a necessity of our nature and an appetite that follows on the necessity of our nature. So we have this inclination to the good of food and of drink, let's say, just as we had the inclination towards the good of continuation and existence. There is an inclination we share with any animal, and that would be to propagate, to have young, and to raise our young. Uh, and finally, there is an inclination more peculiar to us, which is to live in civil society, to live in community, and to seek knowledge of the truth. When we ask ourselves, if these now make up natural law, these inclinations to the good, these willy-nilly inclinations, uh, clearly it would be preposterous to suggest that they do. What Thomas is giving us here is the material on which we will formulate judgments as to what we ought to do in order to achieve our overall good. And what he has given us in these objects of these natural inclinations, we might say, are constituents of our overall good constituents of our overall good. And the question, uh, the rule, uh, doubtless then, for pursuing any one of these is, is this pursuit of it contributing to my overall good? So it would be the ultimate end that would be the, the measure of choosability, so to speak, of these goods. They're all good, but 
choosing them now and in these circumstances might not be good, might not be conducive to our overall good, which you remember, and as this list indicates, includes the goods that we share with others, the common good that we share with other members of our family, uh, and the good that we share with uh, other members of our society. So we have here the kind of basis on which rules for action or principles of action beyond do good and avoid evil uh, can be formulated. But it's not preserve yourself in existence. That's not natural law in the sense of a moral guiding principle. We don't have any choice in that matter. Uh, it's not want food when you're hungry. We don't have any choice in that matter. But as to pursuing food when we're hungry in these circumstances, the rule for that would be whether or not in these circumstances that is really conducive to our overall good. So you can see what here. What we have is a kind of analysis of the human action down into types in terms of whether we're judging about, say, activities bearing on food, on procreation, the raising of children, on living in civil society, on pursuing the truth, and so forth. And we're, in effect, uh, being told, we will make judgments as to how we ought to pursue those particular goods in the light of the ratio boni, the overriding, the fulfilling, the complete, perfect good of the human agent. So that will be, again, the basic criterion or measure of the lesser precepts of natural law. And there will be a variety of them. And if we ask ourselves now in terms of these basic inclinations, what are they going to look like? We can see that the level where we share an inclination with all things looks like a level where we're going to talk about moderation, where we're living, and also with respect to that that we share with all animals, the impulse to procreate and so forth. There's a rational, there's a human way to do that. We don't just on feeling that impulse act on it. We wouldn't be out free walking around if we did that, but we, in feeling that impulse, we direct ourselves to act in such a way that acting on it here and now in these circumstances will serve our overall and complete good. So the picture that emerges is again one that is very similar to that of an array of moral virtues uh, and the way in which uh, action is not simply trying for excellence in this instance of rational activity or that, but more importantly, putting all of those to the service of our overall good in terms of the ultimate end, which of course is constituted uh, by the goods of the particular virtue. To say so little about something as uh, discussed as natural law is, uh, I suppose, a high crime and uh, misdemeanor, but in talking about the analysis of human action in terms of ends and means, uh, I am equally conscious of what a fast trip this is through some very complicated doctrine. But nonetheless, this is an introduction. If Aristotle is right, we move from confusion towards clarity. And this is the first general, and I hope not completely confused, portrait of the analysis. And of course, we would want then to proceed to a more and more precise understanding of it. But th these outlines, take my word on it, these outlines are correct and accurate and can be, and I hope uh, will be, uh, by you analyzed into getting clarity about their components beyond what I've been able to suggest here. But again, as an introduction, I wanted to just lay these out for you and to suggest that we really don't have here rival analyses of human action, but complementary analyses. It's possible to see the end-means uh, analysis as
as operative and indeed uh, without it uh, it's hard to know what we would make of the analysis of human action in terms of principles and application. It is in terms of this practical discourse is the application of rules or principles to the here and now that Aristotle will give us his analysis of the notion of weakness of will, which uh, will take us back to that problem, which, as we saw, is presented in the Protagoras of uh, Plato. But next time, we'll be going on to talk about conscience in moral philosophy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.